0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: You know, Julie, science has done some good things for us.
0: It's done a lot of good things. I mean, it has really forwarded humanity, right? And and made us, in some ways, the, the kind of success story of the species that we are.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the skeleton of human culture, the the thing upon which we grow and continue to grow, and you know, and you can look at just about any area, right? Medical science, exploration of inner and outer space, um, increasing uh, knowledge of the self, the brain, the connection, our connection to the from the brain to the body. I mean, pretty much everything we talk about every week is uh, is a testament to what science is doing and has done for humans.
0: And while the pursuit of science, or what we think about as science has been around for a very long time, this pursuit of knowledge and truth. The word scientist is only 180 years old. Before that, a person might be called a natural philosopher. And before that, you had economists, you had uh, philosophers, and what we now call scientists, all commingling under the same roof. And this affected how science and, and how we think of it was defined and pursued. And we sort of assume that science and the scientific method were in place from the get-go, but in fact, they hadn't really been defined in the rules tightened, uh, you know, until a couple hundred years ago because economists were pulling for deductive reasoning, right? And scientists, uh, were saying, no, I think there's, there's more of this inductive reasoning, which is this premise that you, you take an idea, mm-hmm. And then you try to take it down to the studs and prove it wrong, even though you might want it to be right. Right. And the whole idea there is that you're trying to get at this kind of truth. And this is, uh, now something called the scientific method. But we sort of take this for granted, this, this fact that this is only a fairly recent development in the long history of humans.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically how science works. There were people who, managed to make it work in the past, but it wasn't until recently that we actually said, this is what works, and this is what we should stick to. Now, a lot of um, the advances in the 20th, 21st century, you can uh, you can boil down to uh, a simple idea, trust, but verify. And this plays into our, our peer review system, right? One scientist uh, writes a paper, uh, or a team of scientists write a paper. Maybe there's a big breakthrough in it, maybe not. But then the idea is that their peers come along, look at the paper, and try to replicate the results, just uh, you know, tear it apart, see what's happening in the paper, and say, yes, I agree, this is working, or ah, I have problems with this or that, or this is complete bunk.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's this idea that science can police itself, and yet we have some statistics coming out that point to other factors going on, and that perhaps we're not pursuing knowledge-for-knowledge itself in some cases or truth and and uh, we'll discuss more of those factors in a bit
1: according to the economist's article how science goes wrong in 2012 biotech firm amgen reported that they could reproduce just six of 53 landmark studies in cancer research and earlier uh, Bayer, the drug company managed to repeat just a quarter of 67 similarly important papers
0: Now, we're not taking on this topic today because we think that we are experts on this topic, but by no stretch of the imagination are we. But we do rely on a lot of studies. And so we wanted to point this out today to just for ourselves better understand what are the conditions that lead to a good, solid study or experiment? and What are the conditions that lead to dubious data?
1: Yeah, certainly worth keeping in mind too when you find yourself uh, reading science journalism articles, you know, uh, that, uh, asking yourself, well, what is this study? You know, what, uh, t- are there problems in it? What could the problems be? Uh, because we'll, we'll discuss there are a number of uh, problems that can and do occur in modern peer-reviewed science.
0: Now, one of the things that will come up sometimes when people write on this topic is careerism as one of the factors that is problematic. And that's because we've all heard the maxim publish or perish, mm-hmm. right? And the spirit of it is not so bad. I mean, the spirit of it is really like less than a threat, and more like, hey, this is a challenge to push science forward. Uh, put forth your multiple lines of evidence, your hypotheses, your theories, uh, because we all want to share information. We want to tease it apart. We want to try to validate it or invalidate it and generally create a better understanding of the topic or the issue. So, again, it's an attempt at reaching some sort of truth. And yet the reality of publish or perish now is more that it's uh, this kind of pressure to produce. So it's not enough for, say, a faculty member at a university to write a few really good papers a year. Now they have this pressure to write several. And so there's this idea that questionable results could come out of this. And instead of maybe making it to a first tier journal, maybe that data goes to a third tier journal. And yet it shouldn't necessarily go any place. And the problem, as outlined in the Economist article, How Science Goes Wrong, is, quote, in order to safeguard their exclusivity, the leading journals impose high rejection rates in excess of 90 percent of submitted manuscripts. The most striking findings have the greatest chance of making it onto the page. Little wonder that one in three researchers knows of a colleague who has pepped up a paper by, say, excluding inconvenient data from results based on a gut feeling. So what we're talking about here is cherry-picking information. And then all of this, this kind of careerism, is compounded by the pressure to generate grant funding, So there's this idea that more and more scientists are having a bigger percentage of their salary covered by contingent or research funding dollars. So that means that you now have this pressure to keep the flow of funding going with positive results. So you can say, yeah, see, this is exactly what I thought was going to happen. It's proving out. Um, That shouldn't be the case. Right. There shouldn't be those sort of strings tied to it in an ideal world. That wouldn't be the case, but that's what we're dealing with.
1: And then there's this failures to prove a hypothesis are actually rarely offered for publication, let alone accepted. Uh, you know, and you can sort of squirrel away a lot of this to, you know, what scientific journal doesn't want to be on the forefront of science, you know, full of amazing new discoveries and, 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 and wonderful new ideas, right? That's you know, that's really essential to the overall drive of science. You don't want to fill your, your paper with a bunch of failures, right? But the failures are important, right? You need to know what hasn't worked so you can try and figure out what does work. You need to know what's false so you can figure out what's true. Yet in 2013, negative results accounted for only 14% of published papers, and that was down from 30% in 1990. And then in a similar uh, vein, we see the peer review process um Often uh, sees peers missing the errors in the paper. The very thing they're supposed to do is you know figure out what's what's potentially wrong with this work. So both of these tend to uh, you know handicap the process to a certain extent.
0: You know it's interesting because my daughter's school has nine different design principles of education, and this is something that they actually present to the students. So kindergartners mm-hmm. are being taught about failure. And actually celebrating failure for this very reason, because yeah. the idea, again, is that you cannot have successes without failures and uh, makes me think about Edison and the light bulb and the 100 plus iterations of the light bulb, all the failures that preceded those. And yet, that's not the flashy stuff, right? That's not what necessarily a first-tier journal is going after. Like, hey, tell me about your spectacular failure.
1: Yeah. Like, I keep thinking about science in terms of a slime mold. We did a, an episode on the slime mold way back where you'd put a slime mold in a maze, and it's solving the maze to get to resources on the outside of the maze. And so these tendrils of slime mold are trailing through the maze, and if they reach a dead end, then that tendril dies and fades back, and it doesn't go down that way again. And science kind of works the same way, but you need to know which where the dead ends are, otherwise, you're just going to keep sending your tendrils down there.
0: Well, and then it's also this, this such an elegant analogy because they're going after that sugar, right? Mm-hmm. That that resource, and so they're eventually going to find themselves to the success story of the resource. But then it becomes this question of is that resource, that piece of sugar that the slime mold is after, is this truth? Or is this money? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But I thought at this point I would go ahead and drop in a little information about overgeneralization and extrapolation of results because this can occur in two ways. The first is applying findings from one target group to another target group within the same population. So an example would be you have this new cholesterol drug, and it's been tested on females age uh, ages 30 to 50 well, you can't make the assumption that the drug can also do the same thing for a different population, say women over 65 or men. Uh, the second fallacy is applying the survey results to populations not living in the area of the survey. So this is, this to me was very clear cut. Let's say that you're trying to establish the mortality rate for a certain neighborhood within a zip code. Okay. All right. You do the research, you do the surveying, and you, you've got your data. Now it would be beneficial to find out what other neighborhood's mortality rate. But you make the assumption that just because the borders of this other neighborhood are butting up against the one that you've just surveyed, that they have the same mortality rate. Well, that is erroneous thinking, because as we know and we have seen over and over again, you can have really poor neighborhoods butting up against very prosperous ones. And that skews the data, because the very prosperous ones are going to have a far different mortality rate than a poor neighborhood. And yet, these are some of the, the things that leak in uh, with studies and experiments.
1: And then, of course, there is conflict of interest, which is a, a, a big one. Uh, and we can uh, date a lot of this uh, back to the um, the Bao-Dole Act of 1980. And this came along to encourage technology transfer from universities to industry, uh, the idea being that it would uh, facilitate uh, financial relationships between uh, academic biomedical researchers and the biotechnology industry. And you know, obviously, there's a lot of good that was going to come out of this, and has come out of this. Uh, they lead these uh, these relationships lead to the development of improved drugs and medical devices. Uh, but on the other hand. There's this huge financial aspect of the relationship. A financial relationship emerges. Relationships that can cause conflicts of interest between a researcher's scientific and ethical principles, and that gleam of financial gain. Coming back around to what you said about what is the what is the bait on the outside of the maze? Is it uh, is it knowledge and understanding? Is it is it uh, in- increasing our scientific understanding of a particular ailment, or is it mere financial gain? And of course financial gain for a biomedical uh, corporation tends to boil down to treatment, the drugs that can be thrown at a particular ailment, the medical devices that can be thrown at a particular ailment. And in a 2009 study from Dr. Reshma Jangzi, an assistant professor of radiation oncology at the University of Michigan Medical School, compared 1,534 studies involving cancer research, found that studies with with industry funding focused on treatment again, drugs, medical devices, 62% of the time, compared to 36% of the time for other studies not funded by industry. And the studies funded by industry focused on epidemiology prevention, risk factor screening, and other diagnostic methods only 20% of the time versus 47% for studies with no declared industry funding. So the the, the take-home here seems to be the more money is involved, uh from these uh from the biotech industry the more focus there is going to be on the mere treatment of an ailment versus uh um, you know actually being able to prevent it um, or figure out how to screen it through looking at risk factors
0: Which might lead to uh, misleading statistics or interpretation about the data. And what I'm talking about is absolute versus relative percentages. This is from the article, Bad Science, Common Problems in Research Articles. This was published on Health Readings. Quote, suppose that there was a medical problem that caused two people in one million to have a stroke. And suppose there was a treatment that would reduce the problem to only one person in one million this would be an improvement of 0.0001% in an absolute sense or or as this author says no big deal right mm-hmm. however if it had been reported using relative percentages it could have been stated quote new medical treatment yields a 50% reduction in reduction in risk of stroke and this would be very misleading but it's unfortunately a common practice that you see from time to time. And so, again, you see how thats it's not exactly wrong. It is a 50% mm-hmm. reduction in the two in one million people, but it's not really accurate in yeah. saying it that yeah. way. Yeah, it's
1: just how, how do you end up using it? How does it affect the overall statistics that you're dealing with? Right?
0: Yeah, semantics matter.
1: Hmm. Now, another area of concern is that of unpublished clinical trials. A 2012 study from Yale School of Medicine uh, researchers found that fewer than half of a sample of trials primarily or partially funded by the National Institutes of Health were published within 30 months of completing the clinical trial. So in other words, the research findings here are not being disseminated half the time. So the scientific process is disrupted, undermining the effort and the available material for peer review. Now, according to study author uh, Dr. Joseph Ross, there are probably a number of reasons for lack of publication, such as not getting accepted by a journal, and we already hit on the high re- rejection rates, uh, or not prioritizing the dissemination of research findings in the study. Either way, though, this disrupts uh, the, the process. This disrupts the, the, the strengths of the peer-review uh, system.
0: Another factor uh, is something called selective observation. Now, you've probably experienced your own selective observation before. My example is, uh, every time I get into the shower, my phone rings, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's a perception that is based on the annoyance of my phone ringing and my inability to get to it. Uh, but then I, you know... I tended to to disregard all the times that my phone didn't ring while I was in the shower. And so I was practicing confirmation bias and ignoring the other data, skewing my own statistics. So selective observation in science is essentially trying to land on a conclusion based on an existing bias or belief. For example, a researcher who's studying obesity may have a bias that obese people lack willpower and as a result, they may construct an experiment that involves a plate of donuts in a conference room at work. But if that researcher only records data about obese subjects and doesn't record non-abese subjects, well, then they have a biased experiment on their hands. In other words, uh, if they don't go out of their way to try to prove themselves wrong, they're not exercising the principles of scientific method. Hmm.
1: All right, you know, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss Weird science. All right, we're back. Weird science, weird psychology, and I'm not talking about the... Uh, 80s movie. 80s movie. <laughs> Classic as it is. Uh, no, weird is a uh, phenomenon that plagues a lot of psychology and other social science studies. This is when the protestants are overwhelmingly... This is where weird comes in. Western, E for educated, and they're from I for industrialized, R for rich, and D for democratic countries. So weird humans are serving as the the basic test subjects in a lot of these studies. And you can also add in that weird humans are also often college students uh, in the United States participating in studies for class credit. So especially in the social sciences, the risk is that uh, so-called weird populations are actually the outliers of human population, as opposed to a good standard example of human behavior. And, uh, you know, you see this... you see shades of this time and time again, right? You look at a study, and it was clearly a study that was conducted on campus with uh, students. And in your better studies, you see them branching out from that and saying, uh, uh, well, all right, in this first study, we looked at students, but then we went into uh, an impoverished neighborhood. Or in some cases, then we looked at some uh, U.S. Uh, uh, participants, then we also went and looked at some participants in Hong Kong, that sort of thing. Um and so obviously there are a lot there's a lot to consider here with the software of psychology, right? Because there's so much about human culture and uh and, and your you know relations within your particular group. But it also bleeds into the hardware of physiology. In two thousand fourteen, Liverpool University uh had a study examining rapid eye movements called cicades among groups of mainland Chinese British Chinese and white British test subjects. And he found that Chinese ethnicity was more of a factor than culture in high saccade counts. So the mainland Chinese group scored high saccade numbers, as did the British Chinese counterparts, uh, despite the many cultural differences between the two groups. So, lead author Dr. Paul Knox argued, quote, the human brain is not just amazingly complex in general, but also highly variable across the human population.
0: Hmm. And that variability takes us to the next entry here, which is animals. Now we have talked about how much rodents have um contributed to science, and they absolutely have. Uh, but we do have problems where animal studies do not reliably predict human outcomes. And this topic is really a complex one, but there's a paper on the topic by Michael B. Bracken, who's from Yale University. And he writes in his paper why animal studies are often poor predictors of human reactions to exposure. That one reason is probably because uh, animal experiments do not translate into replications in human trials or into cancer chemo prevention because they're poorly designed, conducted and analyzed Now, another possible contribution to failure to replicate the results of animal research in humans is that reviews and summaries of evidence from animal research are inadequate when it comes to methodology. In one survey, only one in 10,000 MEDLINE records of animal studies were tagged as being meta-analyses compared to one in 1,000 human studies. And in recent reports, the poor quality of research was documented by a comprehensive search of MEDLINE, which found only 25 systematic reviews of animal research. Other studies similarly found only 30 and 57 systematic reviews of any type of animal research. And so uh, the reason that Bracken points this out is because he says these kind of deficiencies are important, because animal research often provides the rationale for hypotheses studied by epidemiologists and clinical researchers. Moreover, if you look at the genetics of this, it gets even more uh, muddled. And the reason for that is because with rodents, one and one of the reasons why we use them, is because we can change their genetic background. Within a couple of generations, we can tinker with the genes, and that's great because that can really help us to study certain conditions. However, um, those rodents would yield really consistent results in disease expression. But humans, we are far more Wild West when it comes to genetics and the genetic background, and that would factor in how the human disease is expressed, and this would yield a mismatch in results between humans and animals. It's a layer cake of animal confusion.
1: Yes, indeed it is. Um, now, on top of everything we've discussed here, there are plenty of additional methodological pitfalls, and we're uh, we're going to include a, a link on the landing page for this episode to a fabulous page that has a list of about sixty of them. And we're not going to go into all into detail on all of them here, but just to give you an example, this includes the likes of placebo effect, which we've uh, discussed uh, at length before, and in, in which the uh, the uh, individual receiving the uh, the sugar pill ends up actually getting some sort of biological benefit from from the medication or the, the fake medication. Uh, carryover effect, where the results of one study are are uh, observed in a secondary study uh, without realizing it. And then magnitude blindness, the tendency to become preoccupied with statistically significant results that nevertheless, nevertheless have a small magnitude on effect.
0: I feel like that comes into play a lot when I look at... Um some of the stuff that's new Mm -hmm. and that's being reported in the media it's very exciting right you go oh wow look at this insight and then when you get into the specifics of the study it's just it's not that significant
1: right doesn't quite match up to that snappy headline yeah yeah all right so how does science correct course what can be done about the these problems we've discussed well um just to talk uh, briefly about um, the use of statistics and uh, managing potential conflicts, uh, those financial conflicts we, uh, we mentioned earlier, conflicts of interest. Um, the general idea that the experts put, put forth is that we need to simplify, standardize, and better enforce policies to manage financial conflicts of interest, and uh, that science needs to keep a better eye on statistics, by which we mean, of course, uh, the statistical validity and the statistical errors inherent in the system.
0: Another thing is to encourage replication. And again, this is from The Economist article, uh, quote, some government funding agencies, including America's National Institutes of Health, which dish out 30 billion on research each year, are working out how to best encourage replication. And growing numbers of scientists, especially young ones, understand statistics.
1: Another area is allocating space in journals for uninteresting studies <laughs> which which is which is crazy because if you think about it in terms of say um you know a literary fiction publication you would never in a million years have anyone suggest hey we should make room in uh, this uh, this review for bad fiction you know a certain amount that we're always just going to include bad fiction but the idea here is that scientific journals should allocate space for the less jazzy the less sexy stuff because that too is essential
0: now i i'm wishing for A journal called the Humdrum Studies (laughs) Journal. (laughs) Uninteresting Studies Journal. Now, another solution would be to tighten peer review. So perhaps dispensing with it altogether. And again, that's from the Economist article. And so if you dispense with it altogether, what would you do? Well, you would have post-publication evaluation in the form of appended comments. And they say that that system has worked well in recent years in physics and mathematics. And lastly, policymakers should ensure that institutions using public money also respect the rules. So picking up, uh, again, to the potholes that we had mentioned, one of them is also skills neglect. And this is that human disposition to resist learning new scholarly methods that may be pertinent to a research problem. And so that would also factor into peer review is just making sure that while you're reviewing something else that your own knowledge of the topic is up to snuff.
1: And finally, when it comes to weird populations, I mean, the big thing is just to be aware of it when you're when you're sampling. Uh, when you're using samples uh, from you know, the immediate uh, collegiate environment, to be aware of it and maybe be less uh, cavalier about uh, uh, saying that you have identified something that is in, you know, basic in general uh, human nature.
0: Of course, we should end this episode with the study of all studies, <laughs> which is that there are too many studies.
1: Yes, this was, I believe the, the title was Attention Decay in Science, um, which is snazzy. Um, and it, it basically just comes down to the fact that there are just so many studies coming out now in so many journals. They've just exploded uh, since the uh, the earlier days uh, uh, in the uh, 20th century.
0: Yeah, and it's hard for everyone to keep up with the studies. And also, the older studies are getting lost in the fray of new studies. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, you know that building upon knowledge is really Important in this uh, discovery of truth, right? Mm-hmm. And it's fair to point out that this paper should also also be analyzed um, because it's just one single study, and the researchers mainly looked at very broad fields like chemistry and medicine.
1: Indeed, trust but verify, right? It all comes back around to yes. that. Yes. So, uh, so again. This episode wasn't it's not about you know doubt everything. <laughs> doubt every study that comes out, doubt every uh, b- b- bit of uh, science journalism that uh, comes across your desk. but it's it's all it's all information that's worth keeping in mind when you do engage with these studies. Uh, and, and something that you know that, that, that we like to keep in mind, uh, you know when we look at these studies in our research.
0: Yeah, and we thought that this was pertinent information, especially when you consider how much data we are taking in every single day Mm -hmm. and all of the headlines that are connected to these studies and where they're coming from and how they're being parsed out.
1: Indeed. Hey, in the meantime, if you want to check out uh, more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, most of which involve scientific studies of one type or another, Uh, you can head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com where you will find uh, all those podcast episodes, all those videos, all those blog posts, you name it.
0: And we know some of you are out there toiling away in the fields, in the labs, uh, scientific researchers. Do you have thoughts about this? Uh, If so, we would love to hear from you. And you can email us at BlowTheMind at com.